Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. What makes them industry giants? Get ready to take a peek inside and learn their secrets of success. This is Silicon Valley Insider, the show that demystifies the valley and helps to elevate your business to the next level. Now, your host for Silicon Valley Insider, Keith Koo. Welcome to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. On today's show, it's all about cybersecurity. I recently participated in the California Governor's Cyber Task Force and a subgroup on workforce development. Be sure to stay tuned. In this week's tech news, Citrix, which is a company you may or may not have heard of, but 99% of the Fortune 100 use them, they said that they've had a vulnerability in their software that could affect 80,000 companies in 158 countries and that really increases the risk of a cyber attack. Without getting too technical, Citrix is used in almost everything from servers to applications to networking. So if you're listening to this message, you should get your infrastructure checked out. This vulnerability has been lurking since at least April of 2019. Spotify just announced that they're going to pause running political ads, citing that there's just not a way for them to have a proper review of the content. And this is following in the footsteps of other social media platforms. I believe Twitter made the same announcement. Will the U.S. get a federal privacy law? This is very relevant because California is going to have what's considered to be the most stringent privacy law not just in the country, but also in the world. It'll actually eclipse GDPR out of the European Union. A lot of folks clamor that the U.S. should have its own federal privacy law. And according to research, it's saying that most likely the federal government won't act on a federal privacy law until so many states have their own privacy laws. And it gets so confusing that it's just better to have one blanket one that covers the country. I wanted to take a moment to bring up that the Department of Homeland Security is trying to expand their airport facial recognition scans to include U.S. citizens. This is relevant because it's been a pilot, at least in Atlanta. It was for international travelers who were not U.S. citizens as they boarded planes that they would need to have their faces scanned uh, when they were departing or entering the country. Now the U.S. is saying that in order to have better and more accurate listings that they want to scan everyone, including U.S. citizens. And so there's a lot of debate about that. It's not yet been decided on, but I also think it's a good time to bring up real ID. So if you're listening in California, if your driver's license is not real ID compliant, you will not be able to fly domestically, even in the state, until you have a federally compliant real ID, which means getting the new driver's license or traveling with your valid U.S. passport or U.S. passport card. Um, I can imagine now that's the beginning of the year, that many people will forget about this and will be denied entry on a plane. And that's the tech news of the week. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo, and I'm joined with Jimmy Sanders, who is the head of security for Netflix DVD and the president of the San Francisco chapter of the ISSA. Welcome, Jimmy. Hey, thank you very much, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Jimmy, uh, we're here today because you are one of the leads of a sub-working group on the California Governor's Cyber Task Force, and it really is focused on workforce development and really empowering 
uh, people to get jobs in cybersecurity. I know you're really passionate about that. So let's talk more about how you got involved with this whole, not just your career, but how did you get involved with trying to empower these people? So for, for me, as a minority, I always experienced uh, just a lack of outreach from various people in the industry. I always thought I was alone. And so I, I joined ISSA, and I started meeting all these other w- wonderful people, and I discovered the keys are networking and outreach, meaning ask for help. And so in my career, I've seen so many people who wanted help, but they were too timid or they were too shy to actually ask for it. And that's why I think you did a really cool thing. You started your own event called A Day in the Life, and you actually hosted at Netflix headquarters. What is A Day in the Life? So A Day in the Life is intended to get students excited about technology. I take various students from of universities, of educational institutions, and sometimes high school, and I invite them to the campus of Netflix in Los Gatos, and I expose them to various careers in technology, not only cybersecurity. And how many years have you done this? Uh, this, be, this was my fourth year, of, and I've done it seven times. Seven times. Wow. Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, thank you for having me participate in this last one. I thought it was really enlightening that you have all these college students, and they're studying for various degrees, and yet um, there's a question of how do they actually enter into a technology field. And so that's what I really enjoyed about your event. Um, what were some of the takeaways you got from this past year? And so that, that is the reason why I, I love doing this and I'm so passionate about it is because when you see the students, they're really hungry. to. They love their careers. They, they love their education. They love their alma maters. But they always, it's almost like after somebody in Hollywood finishes filming the, the film, they're looking, what do I do next? So people graduating and trying to figure out what, what do I do next? And so I try my best to introduce them to people and methods to show them how to bridge into the actual professional world of technology. Great. And um, I think it was really the speakers you had, they were really talking about you don't necessarily need even a technology degree to get a relevant job in the technology industry. Uh, we talk a lot about certain jobs like business analysts, security analysts. Um, those are things that it just takes a solid foundation in order to get into those areas. Yes. Uh, it takes foundation, but it also takes passion and drive. Because in technology, hopefully you're being judged on what you deliver. And if you can show that, not through a piece of paper, which a degree is great. I have mm-hmm. a double major. I have my com- secu- computer c- security certificate degrees, but those aren't what keeps you going at the job. Once you get the job, you got to show a consistent delivery of what you're hired for. And that's a really interesting facet. Uh, both of us being located here in Silicon Valley, uh, we we do value education, but we're also questioning the traditional four-year college system when things are moving very fast, which actually brings us to our topic today. So how does this tie in to the California Governor's Cyber Task Force and the subgroup on workforce development? So doing the day in the life and also being the president for the ISSA, I encounter so many students on a consistent basis who are always questioning the courses that they're taking. Uh, They're questioning of why shouldn't they just go to a a trade school or a two-year degree Mm -hmm. or a four-year degree. And my answer is that should never be the question. Hopefully we make the educational so inclusive and you also start in K. 
So not not once you get to college do you make the decision. Hopefully you're already making that decision in eighth, ninth, and tenth grade. And so that's why we're here today. That's great. Um, Jimmy, with the short amount of time we have left, what are some things you want to impart on the audience? So one of the main things that I would like for many people to take away from is that if you have deliverables, if you have hunger, and don't be afraid to ask and reach out. Uh, An organization like mine, Information Systems Security Association, is great for that. There are other great organizations, but I would advise many people out there, if you're thinking about technology, there are so many of jobs that are available. There's estimated 65,000 cybersecurity jobs. Just in California. Just in California that are available. We need people. And so if you're out there and you're doing a job that you're not feeling fulfilled upon, trust me, cybersecurity is the greatest field that I've ever worked in. I love what I do. Yeah, and one of the takeaways we have from today also Mm -hmm. speaking with academics and industry leaders is that it's the industries that are suffering from not having enough qualified applicants. So they can really help by finding ways to engage with these graduates and other alternative um, education folks who have the passion and the drive, as Jimmy said. So, Jimmy, thanks again for being on today's show. Hey, thank you very much, Keith. I really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. Jimmy Sanders, head of security for Netflix DVD and the president of the San Francisco chapter of ISSA. Any questions or comments when we talked about on today's show, find us on svin.biz or email us at info at svin.biz, and I'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Hey, Insiders. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. I'm joined with Dr. Keith Clement, who is a professor of criminology at Fresno State here in California. Welcome, Keith. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me here. Keith, I appreciate that. And uh, one other thing that Keith does is he leads the Workforce Development Sub-Task Force to the California Governor's Cyber Task Force. Keith, what does that entail? So in 2013, then-Governor Jerry Brown, um, understanding the importance of cybersecurity and California as the fifth largest economy, pulled together a Governor's Cybersecurity Task Force that has a variety of interests, you know, uh, incidents response and uh, information sharing and collaboration. But the subcommittee that I have um, the honor and privilege of um, organizing is the Workforce Development Education Subcommittee. And there are few things more visible as concerns in California than a lack of prepared cyber and technology workforce across all industry sectors, public, private, not-for-profits, and, um, you know, the, the issue is continuing to get worse as we have not been investing in the capability for a better workforce development opportunities. So currently California has over 73,000 positions available in this field. That's is that um, across the state, all industries, or is that just for the government? No, um, most of the, uh, probably many, uh, two-thirds of those are probably industry or not-for-profits. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are spread out in uh, the L.A. basin, of course, San Diego, Orange County, um, Alameda, San Francisco County, Sacramento has a few, San Bernardino, eastern L.A., like Riverside and Corona. So there are some very big patches across the state 
of high demand, high need workforce. And then we have vast swaths of California, like uh, Inyo County or Butte or Siskiyou or Mono County, that have extraordinarily little of tech types of things. So we really are a state of two worlds, where we have the best tech perhaps in the world. I mean, it's coming out of this area, all the way to parts of this state that have very little in terms of teaching, labs, classroom opportunities. So what is the impact of having that much demand but not supply in cybersecurity, education, and talent? Catastrophic. What are some of the results you've seen from that? Well, I think that the easiest to denote is the idea that we need to increase cyber awareness and safe computing among just folks running up and down the street. I think that a lot of for example, you get off of work and you're getting in your car and there's a zip disk on the ground next to where you park and you want to make sure that zip disk gets back to whoever owns it, right? So you're going to put it in your machine to see if you can find any info. And before long... Uh, I'm not putting anything in my machine. Well, but again, for, for those that are in the know, they would know that. But there are general tips and stuff that really haven't made it out to everybody. So, as they say, the higher tide floats all boats. If we are able to raise a base um, cyber hygiene awareness level up, I think would be a little safer. I got it. So, um, well, I want to take one step back. How does a professor of criminology become active in the cyber world? Well, you know, it's, it's actually a fascinating question because my family has very strong ties to computing, for example. My dad was actually a, a um, computer programmer for the large banks in the 1970s. And my family had the benefit of one of the first personal computers at our home at the TRS 80s, if you recall, the trash uh, 80s. My first computer, yes. So I've just been putting on computers all along. And so what I add to the enterprise here is as a social scientist and a connector of people, right? I mean, cybersecurity is a people problem, less so than a computer or technical problem in that sense. That the issue that I work on is how to bring and coordinate activities across sectors. So, for example, at our meeting today, when we are talking with industry, government, and education, Frankly, getting all those three groups together in one place is really pretty rare. They, they, they have not made these connections. That's what I do. Well, I, I think that's powerful, and I'm glad to have been a part of that task force meeting. I think that uh, going back to what you just said, cybersecurity is a people a problem and a people solution more than a technical solution. Absolutely agree. Absolutely. And it is, it, is a, it is a coordination issue not only of people, but of organizations, institutions, government policies, what students have access to in their classes. You know, for example, it would be one thing if we had these beautiful programs everywhere that folks, students had access to. I think that the closer to reality situation here in California, for example, is that your geographic location is really going to be a heavy determining factor on what access you and your kids are going to have to these kinds of programs. And so I think that's an example of how we can take these tech solutions and roll them out across the entire state in a variety of ways through online courses and you know meetings that bring folks together and connect. You know, the, the interesting thing when talking about North, Central, or Southern California on cyber and tech matters 
is that we all have similar problems. We need to work together for similar solutions. Yeah, so we uh, broadcast on a radio station that reaches a good portion of the state. How would you encourage that listener, how would you encourage them to get engaged? I suspect that one of the best ways for folks to get out and get engaged is to become a little bit more aware of a better situational awareness of this broad topic that we call cybersecurity. You know, that means different things to different folks. Not everybody's on the same page even as to what it is. I really believe that if we could have that discussion, you know, across the state as to what is security, why why is this important? Uh, what what are the ramifications of not having a secured computing enterprise? You know, I think that the problem these days is that cybersecurity is such a buzzword that means a lot of things to a lot of people, but they need to go back to some common framework as to what cybersecurity actually is. Correct, and I think uh, to me. Cybersecurity is really understanding that with all the systems and infrastructure we put in place, that at its core, back to the people problem, is that you have to not rely on the technology to keep you safe. It really is a lot of common sense education. And so, yeah, we are, to your point, a little spoiled being here in the center of Silicon Valley. We have technology all around us. Yes. But we've actually, over the last 25, 30 years, enabled borderless Education and the ability for groups to form without needing to be geolocated together. Right. So back to the constituents you're seeking to connect with um, here in the Valley and beyond, what are some of the activities that the task force is doing to, to encourage these meetings? Well, I, I would like to say deeply appreciative to all of your colleagues in the Valley and, and all the tech and the entrepreneurs for the the wonderful um, new world that we have that involves technology and bringing people together. I think that as a way of moving forward that we we find continued ways to enhance our, our collective knowledge in this area. Keith, I think the other issue that's really key here is that we may have cyber figured out today, but tomorrow's threat will be completely different, and who who knows how prepared we are going down the road. So with that in mind, I do believe that the Governor's Cybersecurity Task Force is looking for a variety of high-need emerging areas to secure for the benefit of all Californians, industry, and our citizens. So, Keith, with that point, I think that's great that you remind everyone that um, cyber threats are always, always advancing and changing, and therefore, it one, you will always be employed and there will always be educational opportunities. <laughs> so Keith Clement, uh, professor at Fresno State of Criminology and leading the workforce development subgroup of the Governor's Cybersecurity Task Force. Thanks for being here. Deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. And thanks for listening to Silicon Valley Insider. Any questions or comments about what we just talked about, go to our website, svn.biz, and drop us a line. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. On today's show, I've been talking to members of the California Governor's Cybersecurity Task Force. 
and the work we're doing to address workforce development in light of a shortage of qualified professionals to fill the 70,000 cybersecurity jobs in the state and in private entities all across California. Speaking of shortages of trained cybersecurity experts, I'm yet again going to talk about ransomware on this week's CyberTip. And the reason why is because we've heard recently of even more devastating ransomware attacks. So we've talked about New Orleans, which declared a state of emergency, as well as Pensacola, right after they had the violent attack a day later, they had the ransomware attack. And just announced was the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands they had every single Windows system in the university shut down. Now, this is a university, one of the top 500 in the world. There's over 18,000 students and 4,400 employees, and they still can't assess whether any critical information, such as personal information or even research that they're doing, can be recovered because of this devastating attack. So, the FBI has been saying a lot. They actually give far more updates and bulletins regarding ransomware. And the reason why it's so prevalent is because it's so easy for a hacker to learn how to do, especially in a nefarious organization in another country. And also because ransomware is one of those things that when it emerges, it's at the end cycle of the ransomware or the cyber attack, not the beginning. So once ransomware has been detected and your system is locked down, that's the end stage. It's probably been lurking in your system for months, if not years. Um, When I recently taught a masterclass on cybersecurity to bankers, we discussed how the average lifespan of a cybersecurity threat is something around seven years in the making. So if you think about why does a hacker do that is because they're trying to learn about your network and your systems. And so over time, as it's discovering vulnerabilities, it's finding exploits, it's hiding itself. And so by the time it emerges, it's already covered its tracks, which is why it's so hard to deal with after the fact. So the best thing that companies, people should be doing is to always back up your information, especially if it's critical or sensitive. Now, I know that family photos are considered very important to some people. We're talking about financial records, personal information, or trade secrets, even if you're a company. So always have a backup and have that backup in an offline location. Uh, When I used to work at a major bank, we always made sure we had an active, active system, which means two live systems running software. And we also had a tertiary data store, which means a third backup which could not be accessed by the primary network. Other things you should be doing is always be vigilant. Keep all of your employees, family members who are touching data, educated on what they should be doing. And also be aware that um, cyber attackers are very aware of the time of the day that they should be attacking your system. So it usually happens in weeknights or weekends when they think that people are kind of at a lull where people are not monitoring as closely as during the weekdays. So once again, ransomware is here to stay. It is your job to stay current, keep up to date on your patches on your systems, make sure your critical data is stored in another location, and that's the Cyber Tip of the Week. 
Hey, insiders, welcome back to the show. Once again, I'm joined with Professor Marcus Geisler of California Community Colleges. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you. So we're both here at a working group for the Governor's Cybersecurity Task Force on Workforce Development. Uh, Marcus, I wanted you to do an introduction to yourself, what you cover, and then why you're part of this task force. Okay. So after having taught as a professor of computer information science at Cusamna Serva College in Sacramento for 22 years, uh, for the last couple of years I've served as the regional director for employer engagement for information and communication technologies and digital media for the greater Sacramento region. I know it's the longest job. It's a mouthful, yeah. Um, and as such, I work with our industry partners and with the education sector to make sure that we've got a solid pipeline of qualified graduates to uh, be able to go into the ICT sector and contribute to the workforce needs uh, because we have a lot of those, certainly in California, but especially in Sacramento. And that's so important because earlier in the show, uh, Dr. Keith Clement had talked about this estimated shortage of 73,000 cybersecurity jobs. So the demands there are not the supply which you, Keith, and Taskforce are working on. Um, You had a very interesting topic that you brought up during the task force meeting, which is the real need for industry to step up and be engaged. And I want you to talk about that. Yeah, so um, if you might be able to tell from my accent that I'm, I'm German-born, so I understand the, the German system grew up over there. And um, the industry there is, is more united in many ways than industry is here. Now, we do relatively well in the trades because we've got things like labor unions and things that kind of serve as coordinating bodies, but we don't have such a thing around, around tech, right? So, so in Germany, they have what they call industry and trade chambers, mm-hmm. which actually, uh, at the middle school level, like for, for, for apprenticeships, et cetera, set, set the standards. And academia basically becomes a, a service environment to make sure that industry has the foundations given to the apprentices as needed. We don't really have that here, and we certainly don't have that in tech. So um, my, I guess my, my, my BHAG would be that uh, the, the industry gets together in some way or another. And I know there's, there's various bodies that are kind of in existence already, but especially as it, as it deals with uh, interacting with education, where they can coordinate so that we in education can better meet with our partners in industry and better communicate and better set standards. Yeah, it's a good point back to how we don't really have the concept of a formal apprenticeship starting at either a state level or a union level for technology. Um, but we do have, especially because of the shortage of just overall labor in Silicon Valley, companies rising up and forming, in essence, their own apprenticeship program. Uh, about a year ago, I had the uh, now former head of HR for SAP, which coincidentally is a German headquartered company. But Jenny Dearborn, um, one of the top 50 women in tech, she was so passionate about how SAP and other companies are doing apprenticeship programs that she left to start a nonprofit devoted to trying to convince um, industry companies to so it's a good timing that you're bringing it up to really promote adopting some type of apprenticeship program for people who are interested in a career in technology. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, I need to, need to meet Jenny Dearborn because uh, a lot of shared interests. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, any efforts, and there, there's a lot of efforts out of Sacramento and at the community college level statewide as well that are, that are trying to put things together. And the uh, Department of Industrial Relations for the state of California, whose who's, uh, blessing, if you will, internships at the state level has, has certainly been, been doing a fair amount of, 
of, of outreach. Um, so any effort is good. However, what we need to be careful with is, is to make sure that those efforts are coordinated enough uh, that they would be valid statewide. So what, what I'd hate to see is an apprenticeship that is completed by an organization uh, that's associated with, with uh, Jenny Dearborn's effort um, not be similar to another apprenticeship someplace else, right? Because at the end of the day, our industry partners need to understand uh, what comes out of such a structure to give it more credibility, and if if we if we have different structures, then that makes it more difficult. Yes, this is a very interesting point. Uh, coming out of industry, my entire career, uh, some of the companies I've been involved with, major technology companies. What we did is we started academies, and I don't know if that would be called an apprenticeship today, but we actually knew for our technologies, we had a shortage of skilled talent. We went out and developed our own educational ecosystem, um, non-traditional, whether you had a four-year degree or not, to train you specifically on the talent we needed. Yeah. So is this similar or dissimilar to what you're thinking? Um, well, the, the academies tended to be proprietary, right, in that they dealt with a certain company's products, right, whereas the apprenticeship doesn't need to be that. In I fact, see. to me, it shouldn't be because... If, if you're a company that is uh, working with apprentices, and it's, it, it is working, it, it's an employment relationship, right, it's an apprenticeship, um, so they're, they're, they're actually working for you, as, even though they're, they're students, but they're, they are your employees. Um, if, you, if you have that uh, at an industry level, you don't want your apprentices to just be dealing with one company's products, because ideally, you want whoever achieves the outcomes, that, that journeyman's letter of an apprenticeship, um, to be universally usable within most parts of the industry. So the point of it would be to teach a, a certain common skill set. Now, um, you said you've, you've done some work in banking, so in, in banking there will be certain skills Absolutely. even around IT that will be unique to the banking industry, and there needs to be room for that. So uh, typically it's about an 80-20 um, ratio between the, the, the basics of IT that would be universally applicable and then the other 20% would be industry-wide applicable. So you are, if you have an apprenticeship uh, program, raising not just employees for your own company, but really you're doing it for your entire industry sector. Got it. So then uh, I'm an industry, I'm a company that wants to then engage What's the process like in working with the state? Yeah, um, they're making it easier. But what I've asked uh, John Dunn, actually, who's the head of, of that office, um, to do is, is to give, give, give me some kind of a cookbook right, that I can give to business partners and say, here's how I start an apprenticeship program. Right? They haven't come up with, with something quite yet. They're, they're working on it. But um, at this point in time, if you were you know, a business that's interested in a program such as this, um, look for the Department of Industrial Relations of the state of California. Um, Google search on the, you know, they'll, you'll find their website, and they will have resources for you that will tell you about what's involved in an apprenticeship program. Because, uh, again, there isn't really a statewide structure as a whole, but certainly give you a, an idea of what it, what it should look like, and then uh, you can get started with building a program. Yeah, I think that's what we found in other instances as well, is that I think once... Uh, to the point you were making earlier that you could get industry, um, academia, and the students together yep. in a cohesive manner, this would be a lot more efficient. It, it does take, you know, a partnership. So you need to find an academic partner there as, as well. 
um, to, to do the supplemental instruction. Um, and, uh, you know, that's typically not difficult to do. Community colleges are certainly uh, going to listen to any proposal that you might have. But, yeah, that will, I think, uh, serve to help businesses when it comes to uh, acculturating potential future employees. Um, and it'll, frankly, make, make the transition for students from academia into uh, real work uh, much easier because they'll already be used to it, for sure. So just a little time we have left, what's your grand vision for the end state of how this all works? Yeah, if I, if I were God for a day, um, you would take, and may, maybe it is that effort um, for, for the former HP, I'm sorry, SAP uh, HR person, um, that serves as a statewide model that can then be adopted uh, throughout the state uh, within, within the, the IT sector. Um, we need to all be take, talking the same language. Again, if, 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 if I say I have a journeyman's letter, I have accomplished an IT apprenticeship, that needs to be universally applicable, uh, certainly for the base, for, that, for those 80% that I mentioned, throughout the state and, frankly, throughout the country, ideally. Uh, let's start with California, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So if we could have all companies that are building such efforts subscribe to that, I think that would be an ideal solution. All right. Well, thank you, Marcus. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. So Professor Marcus Geisler of California Community Colleges, if you have any questions or comments about what we talked about today, you can go to our website, svin.biz, or email us at svin.biz, and we'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call one 828 7846 That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. On today's show, I had a number of the leaders for the California Governor's Cybersecurity Task Force who are working on addressing the cybersecurity skills gap that exists not just in California, but also exists worldwide. As we discussed, California has a 73,000 demand shortage of qualified cybersecurity experts to handle the growing needs. And so this is from all walks of life, whether it's working for the state of California, other private organizations, companies, or even universities themselves, all of them are looking for qualified cybersecurity specialists. And the workforce that we've been working on was trying to develop the right curriculum that can address all the needs of the future so that they can actually place these 70,000 jobs get them filled, and have people happily employed. So there's some challenges to that. So I'm just going to put out my opinions what I think should be done. Uh, One of the most eye-opening things I felt going through these workshops was that there's definitely great intent and a lot of great feedback. So you have the California State University system or the community college system who are trying to serve their students, preparing them for these jobs of the future. And they're tied to these syllabuses that are um, been around for a very long time and how they think people should be taught. And so as I've covered on many shows over the years, there are alternative forms of education. Um, There are actually alternative forms to traditional colleges completely. I'm not saying that I advocate for that, but I am saying that there's concepts that can be taken from these alternative education to actually adapt course curriculum in traditional four-year and two-year universities. So for instance, uh, we talked about how School 42, a completely free coding academy, started off in Paris and here in Silicon Valley. 
they teach coding skills to any adult that qualifies. And so there's no tuition and they actually don't even charge for dorms if they have space. They gamify their entire curriculum. And what I mean by gamify is they make their course catalog into levels that you have to obtain. Just like in a video game, you attain the level, you show your mastery and you go on to the next. It's all about creating a core curriculum or fundamentals that will then lead to a career in cybersecurity, a career in gaming, a career in user experience or user design. These are all skills of the future. And also I think there's a misnomer that people think that you have to be good in math or you have to be good in computer science or computers, electronics, in order to get a job in technology. There's a ton of jobs in technology, including in cybersecurity, that does not require an actual technical degree. And these are called analysts and project managers and program managers, uh, people who are involved with user support. None of this actually requires a hardcore technology degree. It does require good problem solving and critical thinking. And so I think with what these workforce groups are doing is awesome because you're now saying, hey, I'm an academic and I need to reach out to the groups we ultimately serve which is private industry and public industry, nonprofits, NGOs. How do we train our students to be the best equipped for that future position? So some of the key takeaways from this working session was that there are individual campuses that are moving ahead. I know that when I was at Cisco Systems, uh, one of our feeder schools happened to be Cal State Chico. And I hear that it's still a feeder school for both Apple and Cisco. And so that's something that really happens quite well when companies form alliances with universities that they had some promising students come out of. And over the years, they developed that into an actual program. You have a really tight bond between private industry and the university system. And this doesn't just happen in technology. I actually have friends who have started software companies that are not necessarily hardcore tech, but they need accountants. And they've started accounting programs in universities uh, to help seed these future accounting graduates to be very well equipped to serve in their companies upon graduation. So these are all different ways I think that we can work together to develop new types of course curriculum in traditional university settings. And we shouldn't forget there's actually completely alternative programs like apprenticeships, which companies are doing already to try to solve their critical skills gap, which is not just a cybersecurity skills gap, but just a skills gap in general. So I'd like to get your thoughts about this. If you're hearing this and you want to bring in your own opinions and thoughts, you can email us at info at svn.biz. And this is a topic we'll keep coming back to because we know it's something that resonates with a lot of people. Whether you are an employer trying to fill jobs or you're a job seeker trying to obtain a job, these are all really relevant thoughts and ideas and we'd like to hear from you. Also, as a reminder, you can always download our content at svn.biz. We have all of our old podcasts up there. It's a way for you to figure out how to follow us. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. I want to take a quick moment to wish everyone a very happy 
new 2020. Also, I can't believe it's the end of a decade. I want to thank you all for your loyal listenership, and we look forward to bringing you great content in the new year. So please be safe, and we'll see you next year. You've been listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. For questions or comments on today's program or to schedule a complimentary consultation with Keith about your business, call 1-888-828-SVIN. That's 1-888-828-7846, 888-828-SVIN.